This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Glad to see you all here today. My name is Petra, for those of you who are just coming, and you're attending Power to Change the World, Jesus, Arabic, and Kale. We have been learning some about the various dilemmas around the globe that we are facing. We've talked about human rights issues. We've talked about tribalism. We've talked about effective interventions with Paul. And we've talked some about hunger and nutrition, kale and corn this morning from Mindy. Now, I want to move into something which I think is close to the heart of each of us as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, and that is directly sharing Jesus with those we meet all around the world, specifically in cross-cultural contexts, which is the reason why the word Arabic is part of our title for this series. But first, I'd like to start with a prayer. So let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your blessing so far at GYC. We've all been learning so much. We've been inspired with a need to come closer to you, with an excitement to share you with all those around us. We want you to come soon, Lord, and we ask that we may be part of that last work. And Father, today, now, during this hour, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit to this room. You know that I'm nervous. You know there are many distractions. And I just pray that you'll help us all to focus, that you'll anoint my mouth, that our ears may be open to hear your message, and that no matter what happens, your name will be glorified, will be brought closer to you, and we will be ready when you come. Thank you for hearing this prayer. We claim your promises. In your name, amen. Strategy versus steamrolling, cross-cultural witnessing. Have any of you seen a steamroller at work? I mean a literal steamroller, like in construction, right, when they're making a roadway. First they put down the foundation, and then someone pours out the pavement, and then the steamroller comes through with the big wheel and just rolls everything. It's really inspiring to watch. It looks like fun. You know, it gets all smoothed out and there's a nice clear path to whatever destination you're going towards. But besides just flattening the pavement, steamrollers can also flatten other things. Perhaps orange construction cones that happen to have been left in the way, or even little ladybugs running across the path or construction workers who aren't paying attention, everything can get flattened by a steamroller. They are powerful. Have any of you met a spiritual steamroller before? Yeah? Sitting atop their steamroller. Okay, you better get out of the way or get saved. It's your choice. You know? Just spreading the tracks and the Bible verses, dropping spiritual comments as much as they can, wanting to win for the kingdom. If you haven't met one, 
You're looking at one right now. I struggle with steamrolling. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Power to change the world. Arabic, yes. Kale, yes. But Jesus is the power to change the world. And I'm excited about that. And I want people to know about it. Because I've got the answer. Jesus. But somehow, not everyone is always excited about hearing that as they fall under the wheel of my excitement. For those of you who don't know, my husband and I have been working at Gimby Avenus Hospital. We've actually finished our work there. But for almost four years, we were working in rural Ethiopia at this hospital. Paul is the administrator and myself as the chaplain. It was a wonderful experience. Our hospital had a cool program set up with some medical schools in the UK where they would send their medical students from England to our hospital in Ethiopia to learn, to do a practicum, to see tropical diseases for themselves. They would stay for six to eight weeks. They loved it. And we loved it too. They would share all kinds of wisdom. And for many of them, coming from secular England... This was their first chance to be in a Christian institution, surrounded by other Christians, employees, people who believed in God. Many interesting conversations ensued. But always, (laughs) right before these students would be getting ready to go back to England, I would start thinking, man, here they've been at our institution, they've seen how we live, and, and... and maybe there's some seeds growing up, Um, I need to give them some water to take back with them. I need to give them some material so that they can continue to grow back in secular England. So I would go into my chaplain's office and I'd look at my bookshelf of materials and see what people had sent over. You know, let's see, there's some old Desire of Ages with some kind of funky people from the 70s doing things, you know, on the cover. I don't know if you've seen. This was what we have sent to us in um, Ethiopia. So let's see. Okay, so I'd pull out some Desire of Ages and some Steps to Christ, maybe some New Testaments. And the last morning, as the students were getting into the land cruiser to go off to the bus station and back to England, I'd kind of uh, peek my head in the window and say, oh, yeah, um, uh, here's some... uh, reading material for the trip. (laughs) (coughs) And, uh, you know, try not to make eye contact after that. And they would take the books. Oh, huh. Oh, um, thanks. Try not to make eye contact with me. And it was very awkward. I didn't like it. They didn't like it. I felt like my steamroller had just smushed out that little sprig that had been coming up, interest in Christianity. And, you know, our fellow volunteers didn't always like it either. They, it's kind of embarrassing, this, this uh, crazy, raging chaplain. And I remember one of them kind of uh, saying, oh, you know, <clears throat> Petra, I think you need to stop that. Okay. Take it easy. But I still felt like there was so much hope. There was so much hope that they could have. The desire of ages changed my life. I want them to have it in their hands to 
powerfully affect them too. What can I do? And I prayed about it. I said, Lord, you've given us this book. And yes, I know you didn't give us the cover to this book, but you can do something with this. And God unfolded a strategy. The next batch of medical students that came, we invited them to our house for supper the last night. And as they were getting ready to leave, we handed them each a book wrapped in wrapping paper. Okay? Nice wrapping paper like a gift. Oh, you didn't have to do that. Oh, that's so... Thank you. And they opened it up and like, oh, wow. <laughs> um, oh, and there's a nice note in the cover. Oh, that's really... And your email address. Good. Now we can keep in touch. You know, this looks like an interesting book. I'm going to read this on the trip. And they meant it. Strategy can make all the difference. It really can. I'd like to share with you some strategies that God has been unfolding to me in his word and in my personal experience. I don't pretend to know anything at all. Um, So if I say something that you disagree with, you can just stand up and tell me. That's fine. It'll make things more interesting. But, But God can change lives through us when we listen to how he directs and how how he guides. He can use us to change the world through these strategies. Now, as I said, this is cross-cultural witnessing we're talking about, but you'll notice a few of my stories happened here in the U.S. That's because I believe that in some way, all witnessing is cross-cultural. Okay? So first, we're going to go to Luke 24. Luke 24. starting in verse 13. I think we're probably all familiar with this story. Jesus has just risen from the dead, and he comes up to two of his disciples as they're walking along the road. The disciples are discouraged. They don't know what just happened. Christ is dead. There's no hope. And here comes Christ. And who's got all the answers? Who has all the answers in this crowd of three people? Jesus. Yeah? Jesus has all the answers, right? You know, the two disciples, they're all confused. Well, man, I don't know what's going on. And Actually, it's not like that. It's more like, oh, I don't know what's going on. They're totally, totally depressed. And here is Jesus. He doesn't just have the answers. He is the answer to the situation. But look at what he does. Verse 17, he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? Oh, how do you not know these things they say? Da, 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 da. And verse 19, he says, what things? Explain to me. Oh, it's terrible. He was killed and then they thought he was resurrected, but nobody found him in the tomb. And da, da, da. And they go on and just unload themselves. And then, after Christ has listened to all that they have to say. 
he says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? And then he begins unfolding to them the plan of salvation. How does Christ start? By listening. He begins by listening to what these, he knows it all. They don't seem to know anything. But he starts by listening. This is a powerful strategy in reaching others with the gospel. We must come with open ears. In fact, we can say a lot by just listening. This summer, I worked as a chaplain intern in Portland, Maine. Now, Seattle, we heard recently, is one of the most secular cities in the U.S. Do you know that? Portland, Maine, is right up there in the top three of the most secular cities in the U.S. So it was very interesting to work as a chaplain in this setting. I spent most of my time at the Maine Medical Center in Portland visiting with patients. But one day a week, I visited the Cumberland County Jail and talked with the inmates. And one Wednesday, I remember sitting and talking with a man named... Chuck, we'll call him Chuck. And Chuck was just having the worst day ever that you can have. Number one, he was in jail. Okay, that's a pretty bad start to a day. Number two, he'd been waiting for months to get his hair cut. And somehow the barber kept changing his schedule and he could never get an appointment. And all this was just terrible. And he was cussing up a storm and just thinking that everything was a disaster. And he was telling me straight. He was making sure I understood that fact. Okay, Chuck. Um, And he said, and you know what else? God doesn't care. (gasps) Now, I have to tell you, as a spiritual steamroller, that is like someone saying, Come this way with the steamroller, please. Come over here. Okay? So I just, you know, I immediately wanted to set him straight about this. I mean, I wanted to share my testimony. I had my butt. I wanted to open it up and show him all those verses. I wanted to explain. I wanted to tell him the story of Job. There was so much that I could share with Chuck. But something told me, just listen. So I said, wow, that's really rough. And he said, yeah, it's rough. God doesn't care. He doesn't care anything about me. And this legal system stinks. Boom, off into cussing again and on this long train. And oh, did I want to set him straight. My husband is a lawyer. I know some things about the legal system. I knew some things about Chuck's life. I wanted to correct him on this point. And um, something told me, just listen. And I said, sounds like you're a little frustrated. And he said, boy, do you have that right. If you want to know frustration, let me tell you about frustration. My wife, she doesn't understand that I love her. Can't you imagine how frustrating that is? Every time that I take her and I grab her by the shoulders and I say, I love you, she doesn't believe me. And... Boy, did I want to set him straight then. And I just listened. I was like, okay. 
<clears throat> wow, Chuck, that's really hard. Yeah, it's hard. And I haven't seen my son in six months. And, oh, and he just went on and cried for about 45 minutes. And I kept getting this stream of frustration and sorrow and anger. And at the end, <sighs> Chuck looked at me and he said, Thank you. Thank you for the advice. <laughs> I hadn't opened my mouth once. But in listening, I had shared everything that Chuck needed to hear that day. And actually, as he was leaving, I was able to share a couple of Bible verses with him that he took, that he was excited about, that he said, these are going to give me hope in my room. And he took them back and marked them in the little Bible that he held in his room. Listening speaks volumes. Acts 21 Acts 21. This is an interesting story I discovered recently. I'd read it before, but I noticed something new. This is Paul when he was seized in the temple. We are going to start from verse 37. All right? Paul has been seized. He's about to begin his long imprisonment. And in verse 37... It says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? And then Paul and the commander continue to talk, and Paul makes his request to speak to the people, and the commander, yeah, sure, okay, yeah, 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 let's go. And Paul goes, and then starting in verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 1, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. Verse 2. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And Paul goes on and starts talking at this point. Interesting. Paul turns to the commander and speaks to him in Greek. The commander says, Oh! And gives Paul his request. He comes to the people and speaks to them in Hebrew. And the people hear the Hebrew and, oh, they listen. Language can open doors. When we learn the language of the people whom we are trying to reach with Christ, we are also speaking Volumes. Now, there are many reasons why I believe learning the local language of the community where you are or learning the mother tongue of the people you are trying to reach is a powerful strategy for sharing Jesus. This is the Arabic in our title. And I could, again, I could spend a whole semester talking just about this, but I'm going to synopsize it a bit for you today. Number one, when we learn the language, it opens doors of opportunity and possibility. Um, Paul and I, our last trip back to Ethiopia, we were a bit late for our plane at the airport. This was Dulles. And there are long lines of security at Dulles. I don't know who here has flown out of Dulles Airport. 
before. It's not much fun. And you go through lines and lines, and we're like, oh my goodness, I don't know if we're going to do it. This is, we're really cutting it close. And as we were walking along, we saw that a couple of the security guards looked Ethiopian. Kind of listened into their conversation. We recognized the language. Said, oh, ah, oramifa beto. Oramif, eh, oramifa, we got rushed right through and we got to our plane language opens doors okay I'm going to give a better spiritual example of that in a minute but I thought it was very key it also helps us understand the minds of the people we are trying to reach and I'm going to give you an example in Ormifa there are a couple of you here in the room who know some Ormifa so I hope I don't embarrass myself by doing this wrong but if you, okay, in English, if you wanted to say, I am going to my friend's house now, all right, I am going to my friend's house now, all right, that would be the order of our words. In order, Mifa, you would say, Ama, mana, firo, ko, nan, dema. Ama, mana, firo, ko, nan, dema. All right? Now, directly what this means, if you were to translate word for word, we have now, house, friend, my, I'm going. Okay? You notice something interesting here? The order is almost exactly reversed. Okay, what do we have at the beginning of the English sentence here? You have I, and then we also have going, the action very near the beginning of the sentence. Okay, do you see some priority here, some emphasis? All right, here in Oromifa, what do we have? What do we have at the end of the sentence? The going, the activity. All right, I is also kind of near the end. Friend and house are emphasized somewhere near the beginning of the sentence. A difference of priority. We are very task oriented in our culture. The friend and the house in Oromifa, in Oromo culture, is much more important than what you are doing. Oh, you could be eating at your friend's house. You, you could be running to your friend's house. You could be sleeping at your friend's house. But it is your friend, and that is what is important. Another example. This is from Danish. There are words that don't translate in other languages. In Danish, we have a word that we use a lot. It's very important and it doesn't exist in English. Okay, and that is, if you all want to write this down and begin using it, we can start a, a revolution and use the word hugelit in English. The word hugelit. Now, as I said, there is no translation. So, 
When I give you the meaning, understand that it's not complete. But it basically means comfortable, coziness, contentment, and hot chocolate and pancakes, and bonfires and candles and togetherness and huglit. That's what it means. Okay? And people use this a lot. What does that tell us about a priority in their culture? A word for an environment, a situation, a togetherness, a unity, a, a value in their culture. But you know, there's something else which doesn't translate from English into Danish. A word that we have that they do not have. And that word is... Please! It doesn't exist in Danish. What does that tell you about their culture? <laughs> If I ask for it, I better get it. Or, we are all seen as equals, and therefore terms of deference are not required. It's interesting. It's, it's hard to step out of our own culture and our own language and view it. So it's hard for me to make statements about English, or particularly American English. But I do want to share an insight from an Ethiopian friend. He gave me this insight because I wasn't aware of it myself. He said, you know, you Americans, and you're speaking of English, there are two things you say a lot, all the time. Really? What are those? Well, you say, I know. All the time. Yeah, that's true. What's the other one? Well, I don't care. Ooh. I know, and I don't care. What does that tell us about our culture? Interesting. Interesting insights that tell us how the people we are trying to reach think. How to effectively share with them. Another interesting point about learning language is that when we learn the language and we use it in our witnessing, we are saying more than just the literal translation of the words. We are showing a value to that person and that culture. I had just begun working at Gimbiavanis Hospital as chaplain, and I was still getting used to our approaches and ways of doing things. Um, <clears throat> speaking of being culturally aware when sharing Jesus, in Ethiopia... It's totally culturally appropriate to be very open and direct about what you believe. I mean, there are mosques everywhere preaching out you know, their beliefs, and there are Orthodox churches everywhere, loud statements about what they believe. The Adventist church has speakers pointing towards the main street of town so that the sermons can be broadcasted out to people walking along the street. They are very direct. They, they're kind of comfortable with the steamroller approach, actually. So, you know, if you're in a steamroller culture, okay, maybe it's all right to hop on board. Um, but I was, you know, I was still kind of getting used to this a little bit. And one of our duties, or the duty I was told that I needed to begin promoting as chaplain 
of Gamby Adventist Hospital was to go to every single patient in the hospital and ask if they wanted to pray together and if they wanted to hear a Bible verse, whether they were Orthodox or Muslim or Pentecostal or Adventist or Atheist, which I never found in Ethiopia my entire four years, no atheists. Um, This is what we needed to do. So I was visiting the female ward, and I had my Bible, and still a little embarrassed about it. (laughs) You know, oh, it was fine with the Christians. That was fun. But coming up to the Muslim patients, quite a few, and saying, uh, would you like to read the Bible together or uh, have a prayer? And they would look at me. Oh, I wanted to sink down into the floor. But 90% of the time, they would say, yeah, yeah, that'd be nice. That'd be interesting. Good, okay. And so I was, you know, this was fun. I like this. This was a, this, we could do this. But there were some patients who would say no. Usually of the strictest type, with the full head, everything. Um, and this one day, as I was in the female ward, I noticed a Muslim patient in the corner. She wasn't super, super strict, but she was, her family was definitely solid, hardcore Islam. Um, but I went up to them and I, you know, Fayada, Naga, yeah, okay, hello, good to see you. Mm-hmm. Oh, she knows Aramifa, oh, she knows Aramifa, yes, 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 a little bit, do you know? Okay, okay. Um, you know, since you know Aramifa, you should learn Arabic. Oh, Arabic, you think? Yes, and then you can read the Quran if you know Arabic. Oh, well, I would like that. That would be very nice. Yes, yes. Well, uh, would you like to uh, pray and uh, read a Bible verse? Mm, no, no thank you. Thank you anyway. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure, fine. Okay, on to the next patient. And each day, they stayed. I was kind of disappointed to see them every morning. They were still there. But I had to ask them every single day. So the next day, oh, have you learned Arabic yet? Uh, no, no. I still want to, though. Good, good. You should learn. Would you like a Bible verse? Uh, no. Okay, yeah, fine. We had a British medical student visiting our hospital at that time who was originally from Iraq, and he was a devout Muslim. And I was talking to him about Arabic, and he said, well, why don't I teach you a couple phrases? Sure. So he taught me how to say, how are you in Arabic? Now, I don't know if there's some of you here who know Arabic, if this is correct, but what he told me was kaf halak, okay? So I had kaf halak, and I had it here on a little piece of paper in my Bible, and I came up to them that <coughs> next day, and... They were all still there. Oh, yes, good to see you, Fayada. Uh-huh. And I said, um, Chaf <clears throat> Halak. And they looked at me. And they looked at each other. Oh, <laughs> oh this is wonderful. Oh, very good. And hugs all around. Yes, yes, yes. And would you know it? They wanted a Bible verse and a prayer that day. Language can open doors. It can say more than the actual meaning. And I don't know, maybe he taught me to say green eggs and ham in Arabic. But the point is, it opened doors. All right, Acts 17. Acts 17, 
we're looking at a famous story of cross-cultural witnessing. This is Paul and his sermon on Mars Hill. Okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to point out two interesting things. Verse 23, Paul says, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And then we go on down farther, and it says in verse 28, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Paul has been watching and observing and studying their culture. He's read their literature, and he's learned something about their beliefs. This is a powerful strategy in reaching others with the good news. We need to learn something about what they believe. We need to study their culture. We need to look for hooks already existing in their culture on which to hang the spiritual lessons we are bringing to them for the first time. If we want to reach the Muslims, we should read the Quran. Has anyone here ever opened the Quran before? Awesome! Way to go! There's some very powerful things written in the Quran, some parallel stories with the Bible. My last year of college, I attended a Mormon university. And boy, <laughs> were we under the steamroller. Um, it was very exciting. Um, but one of the first things I received on attending this school was my own book of Mormon. And Paul was in law school at this time, and he, uh, he has an interesting strategy himself when he has exams coming up, and that is to, to read other things besides what he should be studying because he feels that it clears his mind. So he actually read through the whole Book of Mormon. Okay? He's a fast reader. Um, I don't know if you have a Book of Mormon on your shelf, but it takes up about the place of five or six Bibles. Feels like it, okay? It's big. And we had some conversations with my classmates and our friends about the Book of Mormon. It's almost easier to prove Adventist beliefs from the Book of Mormon than it is from the Bible. Seriously. Open it up sometime. It's, it's powerful. The Ten Commandments are repeated like ten times inside. It's amazing when you study the literature and you learn and you look for the hooks, we can find points of connection, things that people can relate to. And I'm not meaning to say anything detrimental about um, our Mormon friends. They are excellent people. I have many good Mormon friends, and I'm sure they would have some interesting jokes about us as well. But we had, we had some good conversations in opening up their book and studying. In Ethiopia, one of my daily duties was to give a short presentation at the outpatient department as patients were waiting to be seen by the doctor. And usually I would tell a Bible story. And I remember it was fascinating to see the different responses depending on which story I told. If I got up and told the story of Jesus walking on the water and the waves being calmed, everyone would sit and listen. 
oh, I'm in. You know, that was good. They liked that. But if I told the story of the lost sheep in the hills and the shepherd who went out for the whole night and searched and braved the hyenas and braved the thorns and came back tired and wet and dirty, if I told that story, they were on the edge of their seats the whole time. And at the end, they would say, Amen! And I remember asking the crowd, how many of you have worked as shepherds when you were younger? 100% of the audience had worked as a shepherd. There were no large bodies of water in our part of Ethiopia. They could not resonate with the fear of drowning, but they could resonate with searching for that sheep. We need to look for cultural hooks and be aware and learn the beliefs. Let's go to Acts 16 now. Oh, I should have left my finger where I was. So it's just one chapter over from where we just were. Acts 16. Paul and Silas. Starting round about verse 22 is the story we're looking at. Paul and Silas have just come to Macedonia. They had a powerful vision to call them to this place. And they've done some visiting with Lydia and have had kind of some, sounds like some small scale Bible studies with her. And they've done some powerful acts of kindness with this woman where they cast out the demon. And then... A large mob gets upset at them because of what they've done and everybody gets stirred up and they're dragged off to jail and beaten and put in the stocks. And there they sit in prison and they sing and praise the Lord. And at the middle of the night, an earthquake comes, all the doors are open, the chains fall off, the stocks are no longer holding them in. And a jailer comes in and it just looks like his worst nightmare. Everyone's run away from the jail And he grabs his sword to kill himself. And Paul and Silas say, wait, we are all here. We have not run away. And in verse 30, it says, the jailer said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, wait a minute. Paul and Silas haven't had any Bible studies with this jailer. They haven't preached any sermons in his area. They haven't said anything directly about the gospel to him. Maybe they were singing scripture songs. This is possible. But all that they've done is live a godly life around him. They haven't done any specific evangelism or outreach, they've been living their life, they've been living what they believe, they've been praising the Lord. People are watching us. Even if we don't specifically say something, if we don't have the opportunity to get up and preach, if we don't have any gas in our steam roller, people are still looking at us to see what it is we are preaching through our actions. They can read the motivations even before we speak. 
at Maine Medical Center this summer in Portland. I was on call one weekend. It was a Sunday evening. And I got buzzed on my beeper to come in and visit a certain patient. Now, usually we find out a bit about our patients before we go visit with them. So I was looking around for a doctor. You know, why was I called in for this person? The switchboard didn't seem to know anything. The doctor wasn't around. I didn't know if maybe he'd just found out he had cancer. I didn't know if maybe his mother had died. I didn't know anything about him, except that I was buzzed to visit him. So I went in and sat down next to his bed, and we started talking. Or I should say, I started talking. Because I couldn't get more than a one-syllable response out of him. So, uh, what's your name? Tom. Well, where are you from? Maine. Oh, well, uh... Do you have any hobbies? No. Okay. And this this went on. And finally, after drawing as much out as I could, I was able to piece together from his one-syllable responses that he had been in an accident a couple years before at work, and now he was a paraplegic. He lived with his parents. He was not able to do anything on his own. Finally, after going round and round about, I decided, okay, we're just going to go deep here. And so I said, Tom, if you don't mind my asking, what do you think about all day? He said, death. I froze. But my mind was going a mile a minute. Death. this, This means suicide. This means, I mean, I don't know how to deal with it. We haven't studied this yet in my, in my uh, internship. We haven't talked. This is my first really depressed patient. What do I, how do I pull him out of this? Okay, um, let me think. Okay, praying, praying, praying. God, help, God, help. And I looked at him and I said, Oh, surely <laughs> you found some reasons for living? By the way, everything that I share with you now, do not try this at home. Seriously. Okay? You found some reasons for living? He said, no. Oh, well, um, uh, I, there, there are people who care about you. Surely your, your parents care about you. No. Um, you must have some friends that care about you. No. Um, the doctors and the nurses. The doctors and the nurses care about you, don't they? No. <sighs> Dear Lord. And then, I found myself saying, Tom, if I said I cared about you, would you believe me? looked at me. Yes, he said. And from there, God provided a stepladder, and we climbed ourselves out of the deep hole that I had just dug. And by the end of the conversation, 
He wanted a Bible. He wanted to have passages read to him. He wanted to pray together. He was seeing light out of his hole. God had used me to reflect some hope to Tom. People, Amen. Praise God. I, you can see from that conversation, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, God is able to use us in our lives, even if we don't say it directly. He is able to clearly show. People are able to notice our motivations. They are watching. John 4, 7. John 4, 7. This is one of my favorite stories. The woman at the well. Christ knows her whole life. He knows what she's been through. He knows exactly what she needs. She needs hope. She needs the water of the life. She needs what he has to share with her. But how does Christ begin? Verse 7. Do I need to speak up? Okay. Verse 7. He says to her, Give me a drink. Give me a drink. Here's the creator of water asking for a drink. When we come to others in the one down position, when we come to them saying, hey, I need your help. I need your blessing. When we come humbly, it throws open doors for witnessing, for sharing the gospel with others. This is a powerful strategy. We have some friends who live in California. They go to a Filipino church, and the mother-in-law of this Filipino pastor at the church doesn't speak English, uh, but she really has a burden for souls, and she wants to reach people. And so she found some, some English tracts, and she goes to the doors in her neighborhood and knocks. She stands there with her tracks. People open up, oh, yes, may I help you? And she says, I know English. You teach me? I'm being serious. And, and they say, uh, well, uh, what, what do you need help with? You explain, you know, and she literally... <laughs> Literally, she goes, somehow, she wins her way into their living room, and they sit down, and they teach her English. And I kid you not, this has led to several Bible studies and multiple baptisms. When we come asking for help, people are open. Yes, we have the answer for the world today. Yes, we have the power to change the world. But we need to be willing to also be changed and learn from those whom we are coming to with this this power. Acts 2. Acts 2. This is Peter's first sermon. 
Now, I'm not going to read this whole thing. He does a wonderful job um, of presenting the gospel, the light, the truth. But I don't know about your Bible. In mine, when I'm reading through the New Testament, if there is a quote from the Old Testament, it comes out in all caps, okay? Maybe in your Bible it does something different. But if you look through Peter's first sermon, I'm astounded just how many of the verses are in all caps. He is quoting from the Bible almost constantly in his sermon. It's almost entirely just Bible. Peter hardly says anything. He's handing them the Bible in what he says. Friends, this right here is the best strategy for reaching others with the gospel. Okay? I'm, it is the sword of the Spirit. And I was always a little bit doubtful of this, I have to say. Um, you know, I thought, well, yes, of course, it's a wonderful gift. But when, when we share it with others, we should make sure that, that we explain, you know, that, that we expound a little bit, that we clarify that's, that's necessary if we want them to be able to accept and understand and we want their lives to be changed. We need to supplement the Bible. In Ethiopia, I learned something different. And in Maine, I learned something different. I'm going to share two stories with you. I told you already about the many Muslim patients who came to our hospital. Um, I was visiting the ER one day, and here was a Muslim patient in the ER. He'd been in a car accident. He was lying there on the stretcher. And he looked really upset. And I felt impressed that I should ask if he wanted to have a prayer together. So I kind of came up to him and, uh, you know, Oh, I'm sorry to see this problem. Yes, yes, it's really hard. Yeah, I'm in a lot of pain. Oh, yes, terrible pain. Oh. Well, uh, w- would you like to pray together? Looked at me. No! Okay, <laughs> never mind. On to visit my other patients. I was coming through the mail ward. He'd been admitted into the mail ward now. It had been a couple hours later. He was lying there in his bed, you know, still in a lot of pain. And I had to visit the patients that were on either side of him in this big room and walked up to one, prayed with it. And as I turned to go past his bed, I saw that all the other patients were watching me to see what I would do with this guy. So I, well, I had to ask him because they were all watching me. So, you know, have you changed your mind? Do you want to pray together? No. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's good. Fine. (laughs) All right, and do you want to pray together? Oh, yes. Okay, good. So prayed with the next person. And every day it was the same response. No, get away from me. Okay, sorry. There was a little boy who was admitted to the hospital at the far end of the ward. And one day I noticed this boy was just looking bored. You know, a kid in the hospital, nothing to do. He was starting to get better. He wasn't in terrible pain, and he was just bored said, this kid needs something. So I went up to my office and looked around, and I, my eyes fell on our audio Bible. It was a really cool device. Um, it 
you could play any book of the Bible at any time. You could switch the verses. It was in the local language. It was awesome. Everybody called it the radio. So I had the radio, and I took it down to the boy and set it next to his bed and showed him how the controls worked and everything. Oh, thank you. Left it playing with him. And as I left, I saw that this Muslim man was starting to feel better and had gotten up from his bed. was kind of pacing, pacing the floor of the ward. Came back a few hours later and asked if the boy was finished. You done? Yeah, yeah, it was very good. Okay, excellent. Picked up the radio to go back to my office when I felt a hand on my shoulder. And I looked. And here was this guy, this man. He said, where are you taking that radio? I said, well, the little boy has finished listening to it and I going to put it in, in my office. No. Oh, really? <laughs> you are not putting it in your office. You are putting it by my bed. Okay, sure. <laughs> so I stuck it next to his bed. I came back the next morning. Uh, you know, there's another patient in the female ward who wants to listen to it. Do you mind if I take it? Can I please take it? No. You cannot take this thing from me. Okay, that's fine. Came back that afternoon. Uh, do you think you've finished with it now? No. Okay, okay, that's fine. No problem. Every time I went back, he wouldn't let me take it from him. He said to me, this is truth, he said. What I am listening to is powerful and life-changing. And I said, Amen. Uh, would you like to have a prayer together? Yes! (laughs) And so we had a prayer together, and he continued listening to that Bible as long as he was there. It didn't need any explanation from me. It didn't need me to supplement it. God's word alone changed his heart. My fellow students this summer in my internship, there were six other students with me, at Maine Medical Center, there, were, uh, there was an Episcopal seminarian, there was a United Church of Christ seminarian, there was an interfaith Catholic spiritual leader, there was a Catholic nun, and there was a Unitarian Universalist atheist, and a Unitarian Universalist Buddhist humanist. Now, these were all wonderful people, very committed to their work. I learned a lot about God's love from them. They weren't interested in the Bible. I remember during our midterm evaluations, we were supposed to share advice with each other. And I remember them telling me, "Uh, Petra, lighten up on the Bible. Just a little less. Is that okay? Okay. (laughs) I mean, no, not okay. (laughs) This is truth. This is power. Do you know that by the end of our summer together, every single one of those students said, you know, Petra, I'm going to give the Bible a second look. 
and they each had a story to tell of why. The most powerful was my friend, I'm going to call her Julie, the Unitarian Universalist Buddhist humanist. She had a Methodist minister on her floor. We each had a floor. We went and visited our patients. This Methodist minister had a trach tube. He was unable to speak. And every day, or not every day, but every week as she would come and and visit with him, she just felt so powerless because she couldn't communicate with him and couldn't seem to give him any hope. He just, he was sad. He was just sitting there in his bed and he couldn't talk and he, he just looked like he needed some special encouragement. And she thought to herself, well, let me see here, Methodist... Protestant, minister, he probably believes in the Bible. So I'm going to read the Bible to him. So she went in, and every week she sat and read to this Methodist minister, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he would sit there, smile and not. He couldn't say a word. He could not say a word. By the end of the summer, she came to us, fellow students, and she said to us, you know, my whole life, I've considered myself an agnostic. I don't know if God exists. I don't know if he's out there in the world, but I've decided that even if he doesn't exist anywhere else, he exists in the hospital. God is real in the hospital. That's what this has told me, and I believe it. The Bible changes people's hearts. Do you mind if we go a little bit over? Just a little bit? Some of you? Okay, okay, okay. Second Peter 1.18, if you need to leave, you can go ahead. Second Peter 1.18. This is not a story, this is just a verse, so it's going to be short. Second Peter one eighteen we read uh, that's not the verse I wanted. Yes it is. Yes it is. Thank you, Lord. All right. It says, here's Peter explaining why he believes in Christ, how his life has been changed. And he says, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We ourselves heard this utterance. Not, oh, I read about it. Oh, I studied about it. But I myself experienced it. When we are sharing with others... We need to tell them what we ourselves have experienced in our lives. And this is powerful in every and in all cultures. At Ethiopian Adventist College, last December, I was invited to speak for their week of prayer. Now, our hospital was about 18 hours away from this college by car. 
We had never been there before. I didn't know what the surrounding was like, what the local population was like. I had only met a few students from this college, and they were all committed Adventists, and most of them worked for the church. And so I had it in my mind that the students I would be speaking with were committed Adventists who would be working for the church. This is what I had experienced, so I thought it was the case. I arrived at the school and learned, oh, so because of this, I prepared my sermons accordingly. You know, deep Bible, deep theology, it's going to be awesome. I arrived at the school and I learned that I would be speaking every day to about 800 students and then several buses of high school students would join us as well every morning and the surrounding population which was reflected in the school population, was mostly Orthodox, Christian, and Muslim. And there were a few Adventists. And here I was starting off with the great controversy. Oh, boy, boy, how's this going to work? And I learned all this 20 minutes before my first presentation. So... I started off, oh, good evening, everybody. (laughs) Preached it. It went over like a lead balloon. Terrible. I have never had an audience pay attention to what I am saying less than this audience did. Paper airplanes flying, laughing, talking, getting up, running all over the place. It was so embarrassing. It's so painful. So thank you for listening, by the way. I really appreciate it. it. It gives me confidence to go on. Praise the Lord. Anyway... I would just went back to my room that night, and Paul and I just, you know, he was comforting me. Oh, this is terrible. It's okay, it's okay. And, you know, we looked through the sermons. Okay, let's readjust. Let's see how we can make this fit the audience better. Added a lot more stories, took out some of the deep theology, made it more simple, more direct. I, I said as many oromifa words as I knew. I, you know, preached them a little bit in oromifa. Oh, that was wonderful. They started listening. They started paying more attention with each talk as we kind of narrowed it in. And we got it, got it to the point where it was just a clear-cutting message that was powerful. But they weren't getting it. It was like there was still a brick wall between us when I was speaking. One of the pastors, about somewhere in the middle of, of my presentation, was like, you know what? I think uh, you should give an appeal this morning. Appeal? I don't know. No, no, you need... Okay, fine. So at the end, you know, if anybody wants to accept Jesus into their life, please come forward. And they did just what you're doing right now. Okay? Nothing! Ouch! I don't know if you've ever done that before, given an appeal and no one comes forward. It's about the worst feeling that you can possibly have. The next morning, as I was struggling and praying, Lord, what am I doing wrong? I'm speaking your word. What's going on? I felt impressed. Tell them what I've done for you. Okay, so that morning I was preaching about the helmet of salvation, started sharing with them, and at the end I said, you know what, in my own life, 
as I've struggled with thoughts, with painful memories, with trials, this helmet of salvation that Christ offers has made all the difference for me. It has changed my life, and it can change yours too. Afterward, a girl came up. She said, I needed to hear that today. My mother just died. And I've been having trouble struggling with these thoughts. I want that helmet of salvation too. Two Muslim girls came up to me. They said, we need you to pray that we will understand your messages. I said, okay, I can do that. More and more people started coming up after each talk. They were interested, they were connected, they, they were getting it. By the end, the last talk, we gave an appeal. And a huge crowd came forward, wanting Bible studies, wanting to learn more about Jesus. And one girl even climbed up on the platform, an Orthodox Christian, And she said, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be baptized. Sharing what we have experienced makes all the difference. But more than any of all that I have just shared with you, all of these strategies, the listening, the the language, the studying the culture, the being aware that people are watching us, the asking for help, the using the Bible, sharing what we have personally experienced, more than any of that, the most powerful strategy that we can ever have is to give it all up to God and say, I don't know what I'm doing, God. You need to handle it. Surrender, letting the Holy Spirit lead is the top and most important thing that we can do in reaching others. I was invited to attend a Muslim wedding last January. Never been to one before. So excited. I was the only foreigner who came to the wedding. I was not the only other Christian. There were some other Christian people who were there. But... I was learning new things. Everything was completely new, and I was watching, and there were women coming in in their full, you know, regalia with the complete covering, just the tiniest little slit between their eyes. Well, not, well, yeah, right there, but also, like, for them to look out, okay, of their clothing. And they would come into the room, and there weren't any men around, and so they would flip back their head thing, and it was just like, there's a face under there, Wow. You know, this was amazing. And they had delicious food out. And we were all celebrating together. Very interesting cultural customs. And here I was, and this was a real honor. I was the Adventist chaplain. Everyone knew who I was. And here I was making an appearance at this Muslim wedding. I felt so honored. This was exciting. And after about an hour and a half of just visiting and eating... they turned on some Arabic pop music, okay, in the corner. They had a radio turned on, you know, just 
kind of minor key, a little bit monotone to my ear. And these women, in their full robes, stood up and they started to dance. And here I am sitting, what? Wow, this is really cool. I'm learning lots. This is awesome. And they're dancing around, you know, in their robes and everything. And I heard a voice in my ear say, dance. (laughs) Now, when you hear voices in your ear telling you to dance, you usually ignore them. But in this case, (sighs) I thought... I'm not, maybe I shouldn't. Let, let me double check this one. So I said, What? God? Is that you? Are you being serious here? Ha ha ha, that was a good one. They all know that I'm the Avenist chaplain. There's no way I can get up and dance. <laughs> but it came again dance. It's okay. Oh my word. No, I don't know how to dance. And besides, I'm white. Dance. Okay. So I stood up. Like, you know. And they looked at me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And they were showing me how to do it. And we were jiggling our shoulders. There's a very interesting Ethiopian jiggle of the shoulders that you do. I don't know. You can look it up online. It's kind of fascinating. So it was just nuts. And we did this for like an hour. By the end, I couldn't even move my neck. I staggered home and I was like, God, was that a good idea? (laughs) I didn't want to look at anyone on the road as I was going home. But somehow I heard this voice say, it's okay, it's okay. Nothing happened. A couple months went by. And then... As I was making my rounds of the hospital, I came to a private ward room. This is where patients could pay extra and be in their own room. They were usually the wealthy patients. And sure enough, there was a Muslim family in there. And this Muslim family was of the strictest, strictest strain of Muslims in Gimbi. And I had made no headway with these people before. They never were interested in talking to me. They would be polite, but I was immediately kicked out of the room every time before. And so my heart sank. Oh, not again. But I got to do it. So I went in. Um, <clears throat> oh, Fayada, Nagang, oh, yeah, very good to see you. Would you like to have a prayer and read a Bible verse? And the two ladies who were in there with the patient, one of them was wearing a green robe, the other one was wearing a purple robe. They looked at me and, no, 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 thank you. Go away, please. Okay, that's fine. I was just about to leave. When the woman in the purple robe said, wait. And she looked at the woman in the green robe and she said, doesn't she look familiar? The woman in the green robe, uh, Maybe a little. One in the purple robe. You know, I think she was the woman who was dancing at Nadia's wedding. The one in the green robe. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, she was. She was the one. Da- yeah, she was the one. Da- She's a friend of the Muslims. Okay, please come back in here. That's right. Good. Yes, sit down right here. Yes, that's right. Now, tell us what you have to say. We want to hear you pray. Please, please pray for us. 
oh, okay, so I had a prayer, and, and you want the Bible too? Yes, yes, preach it. We need to listen. Okay, so I read to them from the Bible, and they liked it. And you know that every single strict Muslim family that came to our hospital after that wedding wanted to have a prayer and hear a Bible verse because I was a friend of the Muslims, because I could dance, because the Holy Spirit had directed me what to do. And I said, okay, God, it's up to you. And I'd surrendered it to him. How do we reach people effectively, cross-culturally, with the message, with the love of God? How do we powerfully change the world? We can't. None of these strategies are worth anything. Only God can change the world. Thank you for listening. Let's close with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for all that you've done for us. I thank you for what you've done in my life, how you've been able to use me despite my hard-headedness, despite my steamroller. I thank you, Father, for blessing each of our efforts. You know, none of us are worthy to share you with others. We don't even deserve to live. And Father, I just ask that you'll help us to truly surrender it all to you today. Work in our lives, work in the lives of those around us whom we are trying to reach. I thank you for helping the audience pay attention despite the fact that I went over time. I thank you for their patience and their long-suffering. And Lord, I thank you for your patience and your long-suffering. Bring us close to you today. And we ask that today, through us, you might continue to change the world and prepare us for when you come. Come soon, Lord. In your name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.